Would you pray with me? Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord and Master over all that is, Maker of all things, Ruler over all things, we praise and honor You today because You're worthy. You have no rivals, only pretenders. And we acknowledge and confess today your glory, your great name. We pray that in our midst today, in our hearts and our minds, that indeed you would make your name great in our attitudes, our actions, that you would work in our hearts in ways that we cannot even anticipate. You would change us, that you would shape us, that you would mold us according to the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would guide us in your purposes, that you would direct our paths, that our lives would not be wasted, that the opportunities you place before us would not be sacrificed on the altar of self-fulfillment. Lord, I pray for each family, each individual, in the hearing of my voice today. All that are here as a part of this family of believers. Lord, I pray that as they struggle, as they face challenges, as they deal with hurts, Lord, as they experience the sweet joys and the blessings that You shower upon them, that You would reveal Your glory in us and through us, for Your name's sake, for the benefit, Lord, of a lost and dark world. Today we pray that, Lord, You would enable us to taste You, to taste Your goodness in ways that we have never done before, in ways that change the way we think about the future, the way we conduct ourselves and walk in the coming days. Lord, do it because You can and because it's expedient for Your glory and Your honor. Do not leave us to our own devices, but make us solely and completely Yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after uh, an eight-week sabbatical, and I must admit I have enjoyed sitting under the preaching and teaching, seeing things from your perspective for the last couple of months, and uh, it's been amazing to see how God has used this not necessarily for the things I anticipated, but as many of you know, my dad has been uh, seriously ill, and I've spent a lot of time uh, being able to minister to my family that I didn't anticipate that was going to happen. So the flexibility of uh, being on uh, writing sabbatical has um, uh, fulfilled God's purposes anyway. 
I thank you for your prayers for them. I put them in the car this morning and sent them back to North Carolina for the first time in a month. And so pray that all goes well. David Brooks, uh, who is a journalist and, and author, wrote an article last fall. And he wrote this article about, the, uh, about society's disintegration in, regardings to, uh, in regarding to trust. That we are losing our ability to trust. We don't trust each other. Uh, there were some statistics that I ran across that suggested, and I think it was back in the 70s that one of these polls were taken, and that there was almost 80% of people expected the best and trusted that other people were going to do the right thing. And that has fallen dramatically in recent years. Brooks's article says, claims that this disintegration of trust threatens the health and the existence of the nation in which we live. He calls this historical moment the age of precarity. In other words, it's a time of great unknown, a great insecurity, kind of stretches out across our culture today. He says that younger generations have grown up in this age where they don't expect trust. They don't expect things to fulfill their uh, expectations. They expect them to be, uh, they expect to be let down. They've grown up in broken families. They've viewed broken institutions. They see broken government. Uh, all of these things continue to perpetuate this idea in their minds. So why do I bring this up? Well, Brooks and others claim that our society, particularly here in America, goes through a social upheaval about once every 60 years. You go back to the 1960s and think about what was going on in our culture. We had three major assassinations. A president was assassinated, a presidential candidate, brother of that president was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We had the controversial Vietnam War. We had violence on campuses and cities literally burning down around us. Extremist groups applied incredible pressure to the fabric of the culture. And there are a great many similarities to our culture today, are there not? I have to remind myself each and every day that God is faithful and that God is in control. No matter what my eyes may see and my ears hear, this present world is filled with harshness and hostility and bitterness. And yet, God encourages us to taste and see His goodness. So I'm thinking this morning, and I've been thinking a lot lately about how that's possible. I've spent a lot of time in the Psalms over recent months. I can't remember. I've been through a lot of things in ministry. I've shared this with some of you. When I entered ministry, I went on staff, and six months after going there, Karen's mother was tragically killed. We were on staff together. That was the beginning of what seemed like this continual parade of difficult things to encounter. In the first church I pastored, the deacon's wife committed suicide that rocked the foundations of that church. I've seen infidelity on staff. 
We've seen the events that we've just gone through. There have been this long list of things that continues to challenge and push at the very fabric of my faith and trust in God. And there's a want, a need, a desire through those things to feel the reflux, you know, rise up in the back of your throat. The bitterness of life, the bitterness of difficulty and challenges that continue to beset us. And it seems to increase day by day in the world in which we live. And yet God says, taste and see that I'm good. Hmm. So I want us to think about that this morning. I want us to ponder that this morning. Is this possible? How do you feel about things? I mean, I get up in the mornings and look across and it's across the, uh, the landscape of society and I, I'm pressed, I'm hard pressed to think about what people are actually thinking and feeling. Challenges abound. The Psalms offer a lot of wisdom for us and a lot of encouragement. Psalm 34 may be familiar to you. It's one of the more familiar ones, I think. It was written by David. It was written in response to a particular event in David's life. You may remember, before he became king, he was the heir apparent to the throne, and he was running from King Saul, who saw him as a threat and wanted to vanquish his life. And David did something really interesting. He sought protection in the midst of an enemy. He went to the Philistines. He went to Gath. Now you remember David's claim to fame is what? Goliath. We all think about Goliath. Where was Goliath from? Gath. Okay? So here's David who slew the Philistines' greatest warrior going to the place for their protection to avoid the threats from Saul. Strange. seems that David, I don't think this is one of David's finest moments. I think he was thinking things through as a human being. He was using logic. Well, if I have an enemy here in the house that's pursuing me, then I'll go to one of my other enemies, and there I'll find protection. His life was in danger. And he learned that hope and help comes from God, not from himself. Now, this psalm has two major movements. He offers us a hymn to sing, and then he gives us a sermon to apply. A hymn to sing, and then a sermon to apply. So let's start by looking at this hymn in the first ten verses. It has three stanzas, three verses in this this, uh, hymn. The first stanza, I would say, God is showing us that He is great. God is great. Great. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. What does it mean to bless the Lord at all times? What does that mean? What does it mean to bless the Lord? Just to say, I bless the Lord? Well, the terminology here really carries with it this idea of kneeling, of kneeling before the Lord. In other words, acknowledging the greatness of God, the superiority, 
supremacy of God and lowering ourselves before Him, subjecting ourselves, submitting ourselves to Him. This is blessing the Lord. This is an attitude of the heart that says, I'm not worthy of worship and no other idol that I may adhere to is worthy of worship, but only God. I kneel before Him. It means to adore God, humbly lowering oneself before Him. This person has an attitude of submission to God in everything. I will bless the Lord. There's a declaration of determination here. I will bless the Lord. I will humble myself to God in all things at all times, no matter what the circumstances may be. It's at all times when things are good, when they're fun, when they're satisfying, and when they're not which can be very often in the world we live, right? When life is hard, suffocating, unpleasant, confusing, can I, will I kneel before God? Will I bless the Lord at all times? Can I trust Him completely? Or will I lean unto my own understanding and reasoning? Will I look to my own ingenuity to extricate myself from difficulty? Will I trust His character, His goodness, His faithfulness? Will His praise be continually in my mouth? He says, I will make my boast in the Lord. I will make my boast in the Lord. Now, where have you heard that before? You remember? Didn't Paul write something about that? Paul said, but... Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6.14 I will bless, make my boast only in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Jeremiah 9.23 and 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his own wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The Lord says, when we boast in these things, in him, this delights his heart. This brings pleasure unto him. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. This word magnify just means to make great. To make much ado about God. Make much to do about God. Sometimes I fear that we talk about God, but we don't make much about God. Our lives may not reflect how we deem Him as great. Let us join together and make much over God's greatness. Those who recognize God's absolute supremacy and greatness, they want others to unite. David is beckoning us. He says, I want to magnify the Lord. Come magnify Him with me. This is the essence of worship. Not that we do it solo, not that we do it alone from everyone else, but that we want others to join in that. We think God is great. Listen, you do this all the time, do you not? You got a favorite sports team? 
Don't lie. Most of you do. You got your favorite sports team. You got your favorite underdog at the Olympics. Somebody you're pulling for. Someone that you hope does great. And you watch and you observe. And when they do something worthwhile, what do you do? You pick up the phone and call somebody. You cheer. But you want to inform everybody else what they already know. Right? You Auburn fans, if you beat you're, you beat Georgia, you think you're not going to pick up the phone and call your favorite Alabama rival and let them know? And they already know. They saw the score, right? Why do we do that? We're boasting. We're boasting in these things. It's, it's within us to do this. And we want to unite. We want them to have to admit, right? We want them to confess the greatness of our team. When we worship God, when we worship God, I can tell you honestly, when I come in here on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord, I work hard to make sure that my mind is free of all the stuff out there, all the distractions, all the things that vie for my attention and my affections, so that when I come in that I can focus on God. And I can tell you with every fiber of my being, I want you to join in. I want you to feel the same way. And if you don't, then I feel a little disappointed. Do you? I feel a little disappointed. Stanza one, God is great. Stanza number two, he says, God is gracious. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I sought the Lord, He answered me and delivered me. David was confused, probably panicked, full of stress, distress. He's done something that you think is crazy. He went to his enemy to seek protection from his enemy. He's acting out of his own logical impulses. And here he is. I sought the Lord and He answered. He heard me. He killed Goliath, the great champion of the Philistines, and he's standing before the king over those same people. And you can bet that there were people there that remember David and that they're making their case to the king. This is the guy. This is the guy that took down Goliath. Remember Goliath? He's in the hall of fame among Philistines. He's the greatest of Philistines. And this guy killed him. Here's our chance to make sport of him. Here's our chance to hang him in effigy. Out of desperation, David crossed into self-preservation mode. He pretended to be mad. He acted like he'd lost his mind. He's, He's on this pathway to preserve himself. But even as weak as that is, he cried out to the Lord in desperation and he said, And God still heard me. Here I was trapped in my own devices trying to save myself and I'm desperate and yes, I did kind of cry out to God and God delivered me. God set him free. The king looked at him and said, this guy is mad. Why are you bringing him to me? I don't care what he's done in the past. He's of no use to me. How often do we attempt to solve our own problems? David cried out to God in his anguished state. 
And God once again delivered him. David learned that those that look to God, those who look to Him are what? Somebody said it. Radiant. You know what this word is? What have we been talking about all year? Glory. The glory of God. This is, it's the same word. Those, those who trust in Him, He makes them radiant. He fills them with His glory. He displays His glory through them. He reflects His glory through their lives. Those who look to God are not disappointed, David said. He makes them display His glory. Where do you look in times of difficulty? Where do you look in times of struggle? Where do you look in times of celebration? Where do you look? Where your eyes look usually is where your heart goes, isn't it? Or your eyes look where your heart already is. David says, look to the Lord. The Bible's filled with these examples of people looking rightly and wrongly. You remember the story of Lot? You remember Lot? I mean, he's living in this sinful city of Sodom, and God's going to destroy it. Judgment's coming. The only family that even closely resembled righteousness was Lot's family. God sent angels there to execrate them, to remove them from the city. They, They hesitated. The Scripture says Lot lingered. He didn't want to leave his home. And so the angels took them by the arms and escorted them out of the city. And they said, look, escape, escape, judgment is coming. Don't stop anywhere in the valley. Don't look back. Don't do any of this. Just make a beeline for safety. And what happened? Scripture says as they left and God began to rain sulfur and fire down on the city, what happened? Lot's wife looked back. You see, she left her heart in Sodom. And God judged her and turned her into a pillar of salt. She looked back. When Israel was delivered out of Egypt at the Red Sea, God hemmed them in between the desert and the Red Sea. He did this intentionally. Why? Pharaoh and his armies were coming after them in pursuit. The Scripture says that when the people of God saw where they were, and they looked up and they saw Pharaoh's armies coming, they were afraid. They feared greatly. They could only see what they could see. And God instructed Moses in what to do, and Moses stood before the people and said, Lift your eyes and look and see the salvation of the Lord. And the God opened a path through the Red Sea, and as they crossed over and Pharaoh's armies were coming, the Scripture says the water closed and killed all of those who pursued them. And after that was over, it says at the end of verse 13 in chapter 14 of Exodus, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today will never be seen again. 
And then down at the end of the chapter, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and His servant Moses. Or in Numbers 21, when the people grumbled against God and against Moses as they were making their way around Edom. And God sent fiery serpents among them, and when they bit someone, they died. And the people repented. They came and said, Moses, we repent. We're sorry. Please make God, ask God, tell God we want to change our plea. We will do no more grumbling. And what did God do? He instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, put it in the center of the camp, and if anyone is bitten by one of these serpents, they're what? Look to the serpent. Look to that bronze serpent and they'll be healed. Look! David encourages us to sing this hymn. God is great. God is gracious. He delivers out of all trials and hopelessness. And then the third stanza is God is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste means to prove by experience. You like ice cream? Why? It tastes good. You've tried it, haven't you? Any of you like to watch a child eat ice cream? My uh, youngest grandson had his first cone of ice cream. He's tasted ice cream before, but he had his first ice cream cone back in the spring. We were all there for the occasion. You know, it was unintended. It just happened. And man, I've, I don't know that I've seen anybody enjoy something as much as he enjoyed that ice cream cone. He seemed to eat that ice cream cone for an hour. I don't know how he got the ice cream to stay in the cone that long. And he, you know, you know the picture. When he finished, he had it all over his face. He had it all over his hands. And he had this big, wide smile on his face. Yeah, you taste ice cream and you prove its goodness. I wonder how often we taste the goodness of God. Can you see yourself tasting the goodness of God like that little child savoring an ice cream cone, wearing the ice cream cone, being cast in a broad grin because of the joy of experiencing its flavor? In the morning you want that hot cup of coffee, don't you? <laughs> My dad, who got out of the hospital on Thursday, was at our house for the last three days, and uh, my dad loves his coffee in the morning, and, you know, he's been in the hospital most of the last two months, it seems. And hospital food has been pretty good, but the one thing he's missed is that coffee that comes in the morning, you know. It's in one of those little bitty cups, and it's, uh, it's always lukewarm at best because it's been in transit for a good while, right? So we're sitting there, and he just said something. This was middle of the afternoon about coffee. And I said, you want some coffee? Yeah, I'd like some coffee. So I went and made a cup of coffee. Made me one. Brought it back and gave it to him, sat it down. We sat down. 
He took that coffee. I mean, it's steaming hot. It just came out of the French press. Now, I'm not, I'm not as good at that as Luke is. But I can make a pretty good cup of coffee. My dad took that coffee, and I said, Dad, it's hot. He said, I don't care. And he took that first sip, and he set it down, and he said, Boy, that's good. Boy, that's good. Taste the goodness. Savor the goodness. This is what God is pointing us to in Himself. We understand how to taste and prove something is good. Our Heavenly Father is pleased when we taste His goodness. So how do we taste Him and see that He is good? It's been said, been written, the soul tastes truth like the tongue tastes food. Is that right? Do you find that to be true? That the soul tastes God's Word as the tongue tastes food? I think it's true. I think I have evidence to prove in my own life that it's true. We live in an age where untruth abounds. How encouraging is this, that we taste God through His truth. There's so much bombarding us each day that is bitter to the taste. Many years ago, I was in India on a mission trip. And the place we were staying offered this nice breakfast buffet in the mornings. It was great. They had fresh squeezed juice. They had a little cook back there that would cook eggs to your pleasure. And they had everything you can imagine there. They tried to cater to Westerners. They tried to cater to Indians. They did not matter to them. They wanted something for everyone. And I got in the habit of coming down and going straight to the fresh squeezed juice. And they had some grape juice there. I mean, it was to die for. It was so good. And I got in the habit every morning coming down and getting a glass of grape juice. I came down one morning, went over, was looking forward in particular for that morning for my grape juice. And I got a big glass of grape juice and I turned it up and I swallowed about half of that glass in one swallow. And everything in my body said, get that stuff out of here. You see, it wasn't grape juice, it was beet juice. (laughs) My body went through so many contortions, I can't tell you. I'm sure there were little microbes in my mouth and there were shovels trying to get that stuff out of here. It was awful. Very often it seems that daily life is just a giant mug of beet juice, doesn't it? How can you really taste God's goodness? John Piper said, We taste the sweetness of God as He meets us in His Word. Psalm 133, 1-3 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the collar of His robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life evermore. We should be able to taste God's goodness as we gather together in unity. This assembly, anytime we assemble together, Sunday morning we gather together for Bible studies together and worship together. 
This should be a taste of the goodness of God. Later, as we gather out on the front lawn for this time of picnic, a, a community cookout, it should be a time of tasting the goodness of God. Lots of times we look at it as an obligation. We look at it as something to avoid. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth, the psalmist writes in 119.103. Boston pastor John Cotton, who died in 1652, was asked why he stayed up so late reading each night. He said, because I love to sweeten my mouth with a piece of Calvin before I go to sleep. We taste the sweetness of God in His Word. We taste the sweetness of God in His presence, in His Spirit within us, guiding us and directing us. He offers comfort and peace when everything else is imploding. We taste the sweetness of God when we listen, when He listens to our cries. He is faithful, true, pure, and beautiful. David not only offers us a hymn to sing, but he offers us a sermon to apply. It's a two-point sermon, so we know David was not a Baptist. Some of you will get that later. Ask someone at lunch what that means. A two-point sermon. He gives us beginning verses 11 through 14. He instructs us in this first point to live wisely through Christ's power. Come, O children. Is he only speaking to children? No, I think David is looking to children because children are the ones who demonstrate heedlessness more readily than others. We have to teach children how to listen, don't we? Last night at my house, the grandchildren were there, and if I heard it once, I probably heard it 50 times in a couple of hours. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Are you listening right now? Those children don't listen very well. But not only children are guilty of this, but even us who are more mature. Especially as we live in an area like we live in where we're affluent, we're prosperous, we're independent. We're not so ready to listen. We don't listen to what God has to say to us. David says, come, O children, and listen. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Pay attention to the lessons which intersect your daily life. They're important. They're intersecting your life. They're affecting your life. They are important. What do they mean? How's God going to use them? What's God's intention? If He's sovereign, if He's supreme, if He's in charge of everything, in control of everything, and He saw fit to bring this into your life, He saw fit to allow this into your life, there must be a reason, right? He doesn't waste opportunities. David proposes to teach us several things here. He proposes to teach us what it is to fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But the wise listen. They listen. Proverbs 14.2 says, Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. 
Scripture says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. What are the proper fruits from fearing God? He says knowledge, wisdom, instruction, cleanness, hatred toward evil, meekness, humility, abounding life, abundant life. What are the motives for fearing God? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. What man is there who desires many good days? All of us do, I think. But it only is possible through Christ. Through Him we find the path to good living. Keep your tongue Restrain the tongue from evil. Hold it back. Vigilantly watch over and guard your tongue. James told us about this, doesn't he? He writes and tells us that while it's such a small part of the body, it's filled with fire, it's filled with poison, it's destructive. Richard Baxter identified 30 sins that are at the root of the tongue. 30 The tongue causes hurt that can never be retracted. Think about your tongue. Where does it often lead you? How often does it offer up kindness, encouragement, joy, and optimism? How often does it truly bless and praise God? Versus, in contrast, how often... It expresses pride and arrogance and cynicism and sarcasm and gossip and slander. These things do violence to others. Sin of the tongue disrupts and destroys peace. William Plumer said, Perhaps no form of sin more terribly destroys personal, domestic, social, and public peace and prosperity than that of the tongue. We are to seek peace. Pursue it. Secondly, he says that we should live confidently in Christ's provision. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His providence is active over believers for their good. He gives restraining and sustaining grace. His ears are open to their cry of righteousness. He never fails to regard earnest, humble, believing prayer. David discovered this on many occasions in his life. When he was tending sheep, when he was going up against Goliath, he didn't take on the armor of Saul when he went up against Goliath, but instead armed himself with the faithfulness of God. He saw firsthand how God provided for him, and he saw firsthand how God turned his face against his enemies. This is what he's describing. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. He draws near 
to those who are brokenhearted, those who are crushed in spirit, those who have failed miserably and understand their failure and understand that it's not pleasing to the Lord and they understand they are incapable of changing it on their own. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is not what modern Christianity teaches us, is it? Prosperity teaching tells us that if you are doing well, if you're a follower of Christ, then life's going to be easy. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be prosperous. You're going to be happy. And this runs rampant in our culture. And yet when we look at Scripture and compare Scripture to it, we find many are the afflictions of the righteous. David's teaching here is in complete contrast to that old movement. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, evils. Yet the Lord delivers the righteous out of them all. The Lord delivers the righteous out of them all. Verse 20 here is pointing to the Messiah. We understand that. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This promise applies to us as well. We may suffer, we may endure hardship, we may struggle, but He preserves. He preserves us in and through Christ. The Lord redeems and ransoms the life of His servants. He created us, made us sin, and has enslaved us through Adam's failure and left us dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But the Lord has redeemed us through His own blood. And none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. There is there, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The lost, the sinful, will face condemnation. In fact, John 3, 18 says they are condemned already by their sin. But in Christ there is no condemnation. Only liberty. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So, what is your standing? Where do you stand this morning? I'm not talking about how long you've been going to church. I'm not talking about your membership. I'm not talking about all the things you've served. I want to know about your spiritual your spiritual relationship with Almighty God. Are you in relationship with Him fully and completely? If you faced, if you faced Him today, would you be condemned by your sin, still in bondage to sin, or set free through the shed blood of Christ, having hope, forgiveness, the promise of life everlasting in His presence through Christ, through Christ. How's your hymn singing day by day? Day by day. You know, when we gather together each Sunday, this ought to be out of the overflow of what has taken place in your private sessions with God during the week. 
We should come together eager to put our voices together. Come magnify the Lord together with me. In just a moment, James is going to come and his team and lead us in singing Psalm 34. I know you're going to say, well, I don't know that song. Well, okay, learn it. Learn it. And let's magnify the Lord together. He didn't say get all the notes right. He didn't say even get all the words right. Though we give you the words so you can get those right, okay? But to lift up your voice and magnify the Lord. It's, we don't come to magnify us. We come to magnify the one who deserves to be magnified and made great over. Is he pleased with the utterances of our voice? That's all that matters. He doesn't say sing it in tune. He says make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise. You can define noise in a lot of different ways, can't you? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Taste and see that He is good. I long to taste the goodness of God. If I had to put some kind of parameters around where I see my life these days, it feels like, I know what I'm saying, I'm doing this intentionally, it feels like about 95% of life is bitter. It's bitter. And it clamors for our affections. The idols of the world clamor for our affections and our hearts. And it's never been truer than it has over the last 18 months. I cannot tell you how many days I just wanted to say, God, I can't do this anymore. I can't do life in this world anymore. Will you just extract me and bring me to glory? I don't want to be here anymore. We've lost our minds if we ever had them. But he hasn't answered that prayer. It may give you some new direction for your prayer time this week. But I'm going to tell you what has happened. In the midst of all the bitterness, in the midst of all the sorrow and the, and the hurt and the pain and the constant onslaught of negative stuff that seems to dominate life, God has shown me in those moments not as much as I want, but He continues to show me that He is good, that He is sweet, that He is beautiful. It's the only thing that keeps me going. When my eyes open in the morning and I say, Oh God, another day, another day in this world. I can't bear it. Only in you can I bear it. Only in you. And you know what? He's faithful every time. He says, hey, Jerry, here's a reason to get out of bed this morning. I'm still on the throne. Oh, Jerry, 
there's a reason to go through the day and encounter all those things because my kingdom is coming into view fully and completely. Do it because I'm going to do it with you. Keep going. And I say, oh, God, you are indeed good. Maybe I can make it through this day. Maybe I can make it through this day. Maybe. Father, we thank you. We praise you for who you are, for all that you do. Lord, I am hungry even more for your sweetness. Every taste makes me want more and more. I can't wait for the time that we gather around your throne and know your goodness and sweetness without any interference, any encumbrance. Lord, I pray that in the meantime, as, we, as you leave us here in this world, this world that is dark and fallen and broken, but there's still so much good that you're doing and that you want to do. And I pray that you help, Lord, our eyes to look upward toward you, our hearts to be lifted toward you, that our tongues might taste your goodness and rejoice and rejoice even amid the bitter, even amid the bitter hurts and hard things. And Lord, as we sing together now, I pray that indeed we might magnify Your glory. We might magnify Your name together in a way that pleases You, that pleases You and honors You, that all may know that You are great and good and gracious. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.